not everybody who gets into a position of power has thought about or has the tools to question the power that they're in. This woman has made her voice heard. Unfortunately, I think we habitually, as communities, elect people to positions who have no experience and no desire to challenge power. That was Tracy wilson Kleekamp. She has taken her activism across the country. In this episode, we learn about how she ended up in our vibrant corner of the world and why she's fighting to make it brighter. Welcome to Vox Voice, a podcast designed to dig a little deeper. My name's Gabi Morera de Nuila, and I'm the online editor at Vox Magazine. Our team engages with the community to uncover the secrets behind Colombia's well-known figures. In the studio, we chat about anything from childhood dreams to what's next for these Columbia changemakers, giving you a taste of the pages of Vox Magazine just in podcast form. We started the podcast earlier this year and we're still getting to know the people who make our community special. They've made the news many times for the changes they've inspired and the actions they've taken, but we haven't had the chance to learn who they truly are. Here, they share their candid thoughts and experiences and we see them with the dimension they have as human beings. We have three new episodes this season, one for each section of Vox Magazine. For our City Life episode, we wanted to showcase someone vibrant and outspoken and get to know her personally. President of Raise Matters Friends, Tracy wilson Kleekamp came to Columbia in 2003, where she received her master's degree, is studying for her PhD, and raised three children. She's made headlines for her activism work with Race Matters Friends, the nonprofit group fighting for racial equity. In her dynamic day-to-day, she follows the mantra, think globally, act locally, as she has since she was a young girl. I'm your host, Gaby Morera de Nuila, and here's our reporter, Danielle Peiser, in conversation with Tracy wilson Kleekamp. Welcome to Vox Voice. So how did your childhood sort of influence who you are now? So I always tell this story that on my block, there were like six black families, there were some Native American families, there were white families, there were Spanish-speaking families, and so I always had like a little mini United Nations neighborhood. And also everyone took care of each other. So I remember there was like the gasoline crisis and my dad didn't have money for gas and my neighbor gave him money for gas and they do do my hair. And we had another uh, very older couple that lived a couple doors over, the Willises. And um, they had a really beautiful garden. They kept their place immaculate, but sometimes they would like fall and stuff like that. And so, they would be, you know, go check on the Willises, make sure they're okay. So we'd go over there and, you know, we were always running through their yard and stuff too, you know. Um, but just to check on them, um, if people got into disputes in the neighborhood, people would go over and talk to them. Um, a lot of our friends, our Spanish-speaking friends, their their grandmas were around. And so when their moms were, at, were not there, their grandmas were tend to us. And so they would talk to us in Spanish. We kind of knew what the, what the deal was. So I think I always felt kind of cared for in my neighborhood. How do you feel like that diverse like community atmosphere that you grew up in at such a young age like sort of affected who you became long term? Like, Well, I think I don't have a fear of people, right? I don't have this sort of this like NIMBY thing. Like I don't have that, mm-hmm. right? If I hear somebody else speaking another language, I'm not like scared um, and I don't get upset um, if, you know, I have, if they have an accent, you know, I don't mm-hmm. have those kinds of things. 
I, I enjoy other people's ways of celebrating their traditions and their cultures. And I like to learn from, you know, people do th things differently. And I like to like, well, I think I might borrow that. That's, that's kind of cool, you know? Mm. So I think being in an environment where there were all kinds of people made me less people adverse, right? That's awesome. And I think, um, you know, we talk about segregation stuff a lot and how important it is to, if you, if you learn to build relationships outside of your comfort zone, if you will, um, it allows you to navigate uh, in life a lot more easily because you don't have these sort of preconceived notions about, about people. And so it was, it was just never an, an issue for me. Um, when I moved to Southern California, I went to a high school where there were a lot of refugees, so people that were, came from Cambodia and Vietnam, um, people who um, had fled various places in the world. Um, some of my friends, their parents or grandparents had been um, interned in the Japanese um, internment camps. So um, there are people from China who were refugees. Um, I had friends from um, Iraq and Iran, um, friends from all over the world. So it again, it was kind of reinforced, you know, what I had in, in New Mexico and, and since it's in, you know, Westminster, California, which is like this was then like this conservative little town and now it's basically a um, little little Saigon, right? Mm -hmm. It's totally changed. So um, I think being going to school with people who have these really intense stories about how they came to the United States and yeah. what that was like to flee. Mm -hmm where you were living because of war and who you lost. Um, I remember one of, one of my friends um, from Vietnam and my dad was explaining to us that they had been through a trauma that, we, that was so hard for us to just grasp, you know, at that time. And um, my dad's like, they're taking care of each other and this trauma that they survived. And so we need to respect their space and respect their healing and our job is not to make them do things our way to appreciate the ways that they you know do things yeah, right for sure. so um i mean I, I have friends from from everywhere you know so that was never an issue for me mm -hmm. and so i think that um it, it allows me to sort of kind of move in a way where i'm not constantly having to deal with fear right right because someone's different i don't yeah. i don't have that I don't have that. Yeah, it sounds like you had a, like a really rich cultural experience growing up. And I think a lot of people in the US maybe don't experience that. Like, do you have any advice for people who might have a little bit of fear when approaching diversity? Well, so first of all, I don't like the word diversity. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I think people make decisions about where they want to live mm -hmm. because they don't want to live around or with people who are different from themselves. And I don't, I don't know how to disabuse people of that. That has to be something that they want to mm -hmm. um, work on themselves, right? right? Um, but it's a huge problem in our our our, our culture because all of our institutions send this message that you don't want to live by this kind of people, mm -hmm. and you don't want to live by this kind of space. And actually, the people who really benefit and their kids really benefit is by living in those mixed neighborhoods, right? Yeah. Where there's, you have different kinds of people that you that you learn from and feed from. So. Um, those are my values. I mean, that, that's like my philosophy. And so not everybody shares my philosophy, right? right? So I think it makes life a lot richer when you have this vast pool of people that you can draw from mm -hmm. to learn from and to be in your life, so. 
Do you feel like a lot of those values stem from your parents? Yeah. Do you want to like tell us a little bit more about your parents? What I will say is that um, I have to step back a little bit. So one of my most memorable memories about my dad, I was seven, and it was the year that Shirley Chisholm was running for president, and my dad was pounding this sign in our front yard, and we were we were having a conversation about you know him telling me how important it was that this black woman was running for for president, right? So that's like a, like a foundational memory for me. And then the other one kind of just kind of wore over me on time was my dad had this big picture of Malcolm X um, hanging in the den. Like, so I didn't really, it took me a while before I kind of really started to come to terms with, you know, who Malcolm X was and why it was important. Um, so those are like foundational things for me remembering. And then when my dad um, married my stepmom, it turns out that my dad had some sexist kind of ways. And so he had some names for women that were not very good. And so my stepmom pretty much schooled him. So she introduced us to Marlo Thomas' as Free to Be You and Me and this sort of breaking this whole binary thing about boys do this and girls do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's a that's really awesome. rich, yeah. that's a really rich part of that. Um, I have a half brother and he wanted a doll. And so there was this whole thing, you know, boys can't have dolls. And uh, there's a great song on the Free to Be You and Me, um, William Wants a Doll, right? Um, so that we would have friends and they would be upset because their boys wanted to have a doll. And so my stepmom would work it out so they could have a conversation about, you know, this isn't the bad thing because this, mm -hmm. this child's going to be a father someday, just like in the song, right? Yeah. So you want them to have this. Um, another thing that my stepmom did, which was, I, thought, I always tell the story, I had this PE coach, right? And the girls weren't allowed to do anything because we were girls. So, right. I mean, my <laughs> students, right, this still happened to them. And yeah. they're, and I'm 55 years old, right? So if that's still happening, like, that's... It's hard to break bad habits. Yeah, no, that's insane. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> we had PE, and he's like, oh, you girls, you, you go over there and sit on the side. So we're, we're always sitting in PE on the side because we're girls, right? And so they were playing... Uh, flag football one day and I really wanted to play because you know we're running and grab the flag it's funny he wouldn't let us play we had to sit on the side so I went home and I had told my, my I had been telling my stepmom about this but I told her you know we weren't able to play football today because we're girls and all this so okay so one day I'm leaving to go home from school and I'm in am I in fifth grade I think I'm in fifth grade and I see my stepmom there and I'm thinking, oh, good, man, I'm getting a ride home. <laughs> She's, no, you start walking, go home. So she has a meeting with the PE coach, goes in the cafeteria, closes the door. She's in there for a long time because I get home. She's not home for a while. But we got to play football after that. <laughs> he did not sideline us anymore on the sidewalk. Did she ever tell you what she said? I, she probably did, but she just was like, you know, I probably got a lot of this from her. She was just like very matter of fact. And she just explain it. Um, she did that too in terms of me getting into the gifted program, you know. Mm -hmm. And my stepmom's white, by the way, so she's leveraging her privilege, right, yeah. and her insights when there was inequity, right. Mm -hmm. So she wanted to be in the gifted program, and they're like, "Well, she has to take this test." And she's like, well, "Okay, well, that's fine. You can make her take the test, but I don't care if she doesn't pass the test. You're gonna put her in the class because she works like a gifted student." So, okay. Go ahead and give her the test, but you're going to put her in the program. I got in, right? 
And she also suggested that they put kids in that gifted program who didn't pass the test but were close, right? So you have the class B half and half. So that's how I got in the gifted program. I kind of want to step back and ask you, um, when did you move away from California and how did you end up in Columbia? So we moved from California in 2004. Around 1996, I... discovered that my family was from Missouri. I didn't know that. I didn't know I had roots in Missouri. I was helping my son with a genealogy project and it turned out that my family was from Bunston, Cooper County, Missouri. And then it turns out that the people that owned my family are the same people that kind of built the university, right? The Rollins, the Mm, Hickmans and all that. So, and then my husband's family was from Missouri. They were from Washington, Missouri. And so we would come here on vacations and things like that. But I came here once to do research, and I was on campus, and I was like, this is a cute town. Like, this is affordable. We could do this. <laughs> so what are sort of your views on your relationship with people in power? So my view is that um, not everybody who gets into a position of power has thought about or has the tools to question the power that they're in. In other words, we elect people because we think that they're nice. But we don't ask, how, what kind of skills does this person have to ask hard questions and to resist power structures that produce desperate outcomes, right? Um, because if they're afraid of that, then go nowhere, mm-hmm. right? So unfortunately, I think we habitually, as communities, elect people to positions who have no experience and no desire to challenge power. So you've sort of chosen activism as like your life goal, like your life, <laughs> like your passion. Do you think that we should all sort of be activists in, in our daily lives and be challenging the systems in, in which we live and sort of become accustomed to? I mean, this is the way that I exist in the world because mm-hmm. um, I am a black woman. And so every yeah. day I'm confronted with that. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't have the privilege of being able to be invisible. Right. Because yeah. I'm not faced with it. And um, so it's a choice that I made. I think people who really believe and want to have a more equitable society end up having to make a decision about how they want to spend their energy. Yeah. Right. And there's all kinds of ways to spend your energy for change. There's not one way. There's lots of ways. So um, the way I do it does not work work for everybody. So there's lots of ways to do it. I think um, what's more important is to develop an an awareness of how power works, right? No one's, we aren't really taught, okay, this is the way power works, right? And this is how this system is gonna pit people against each other so that we can maintain the status quo. Um, we're not taught where to intervene and interrupt, right? We're taught to go and be nice. And if we're nice, something good might happen. And I'm here to tell you that doesn't work. Yeah, This just doesn't work. People in power like their power and they wanna stay there. And the only way that they actually start to snap out of it is when you show up and you call them to the carpet. I really feel that it's important, um, at least in our group, is to talk about the ways that um, power is manipulated mm-hmm. to keep people silent and also to keep people who are already benefiting to continue to benefit. And, and that, that's, a huge, that's a huge problem because people yeah. are very fearful yeah. 
of challenging um, these systems, right, institutions, because they can be retaliated against or people say they don't like them and that kind of thing. And it's like uh, also people say things to me like, well, um, if you were nicer or you, you know, you hurt someone's feelings when you said X, Y, Z and. <laughs> OK, we are all grown people. Right. Right. I mean, like, you know, I don't run a babysitting service. Right. Uh, so <laughs> I mean, I'm not, that's not my problem, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and also, you know, you like don't come to the game unprepared, mm-hmm. right? So I'm wa- trying to watch my metaphors. I messed up on using a metaphor the other day in class, and I was going to say, I was going to say, don't come to uh, the gunfight without your gun. And I don't want to use that kind of that. But what I, what I will say is that people come to the table without their intellectual um, toolbox to engage, mm-hmm. um, and um, I don't operate that way, <laughs> right? So um, what I would argue is that I think people need to find a way to build a more robust toolbox for engaging um, in issues, including the things that are difficult and uncomfortable for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of times we... We think of the world in a very black and white way, and, think and it's that not. It, it, you know, there should be a, more of a space to be critical of one another in a in a supportive, uplifting way. And I think a lot of times that's what's really challenging. So I I like to think of it like um, I mean one of the things I do a lot since being in graduate school is I do a lot more like drawing and doodling and mapping, but I like to think of it as you know being able to exist in the margins, right? And then in those margins there are pockets of spaces to intervene. Yeah. Right. So how do you how do you hone in your your nuance lens? Right. Yeah. To look for those pockets and to go get in those pockets and push. Yeah. Right. To push, make a noise, you know, mm-hmm. call, make a disruption, you know, call attention. Right. Because mm-hmm. um, that's where the action's at. That's yeah. where we need to do the work. Right. Or in those those marginalized spaces. Right. And it's really scary to be in that space. And so what I'm saying is that I'm OK being in that space. Mm-hmm. Not everybody wants to go step into that particular kind of space, but I think that's where I think that's where the action's at. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Not in this other space where everyone's protected and yeah. they can tell each other their same old lies over and over again and be special and all that other that's not any fun. Yeah. Right. But going to the other pace places stretches people, right? Mm-hmm. So on top of having um, a more robust toolbox how do you practice stretching yourself, right? Right. How do you, you know, how do you get yourself to process another point of view for more than five minutes? Yeah. Right. Yeah. How have you sort of changed since you've been living in Missouri? <sighs> it's a loaded question, I know. <laughs> so I think a long time ago when I was younger, my dad said, one day you know he said one yeah one day you're gonna realize that um that you're black and it matters because you accept everybody but everyone doesn't accept you the way that the same way that you accept them and he goes but i can't tell you what that looks like right now you'll just figure it out so i will say that my my stint of working at the medical school as the 
um, director of diversity and outreach, I think I learned for the first time what institutional racism really looked like. I had seen it before in my jobs and things like that. I have all kinds of stories about that. Taking people to court and, I mean, filing complaints and stuff. I had a lot of fun. Uh, but um, to see it enacted, like, in an institutional structure was, like, wow. I was like, wow. So if I had never worked at the medical school, I would not have known about sort of this institutional culture around race and and gender and anti-LGBTQ and this really difficult long history with race at the institution. And so um, that experience and leaving that job sent me back to do another long stint of counseling. And I think since I was in my 40s, it'll, I knew more, right? I'd experienced more. And so... Mm-hmm. Counseling was really different, right? I was actually able to like, oh, oh, well, this why this makes sense about this, and this makes sense about this, and so I, um, re- after leaving that job, I was sick for a long time, and for about a year, and then um, kind of recovered and came back, and so I started to see the world really differently. So I started mm. really paying attention to the power dynamics and the way people are manipulated into going along, right? It's not, it's not so overt, but it's kind of expected, mm-hmm. right? And um, that we produce many conversations about you know, diversity and equity and stuff, but people don't really have a meaningful, you know, everyday walking toolbox about what that means, right? And so I just think that um, sort of coming into embracing who I am was a recognition that I'm just not gonna drink that Kool-Aid mm-hmm. and play that game. And so, yeah. um, and, and, and and also it's not always like a call out, it's like a call in. What does it look like to imagine a world where we all have sort of this consensus that, you know, we're all valuable. Yeah. We're all equally valuable. And we, we sh- should, as a society, value taking care of the people who are the most vulnerable mm. among us, right? But we don't we don't have that, right? We don't have that. Yeah. And um, and for a lot of people, for me to say that's like radical and and idealistic and okay, I accept that. But I don't want to be a party to oppressing and putting my foot and my arms and my body on the backs of other people mm-hmm. who are vulnerable just because I can. Yeah. Right. And that's just one of those things where you look at your toolbox and you look at where you've come. And you're like, how, how do I retool this? Like, like, what do I really believe? It's like asking people, like, what do you really believe social justice is? I don't have a list of you need to do step one, step two, step because it don't work like that. Right. It's not a linear chronological thing. Right. It's a journey, yeah. not a destination. Right. For it's sure. always it's it's always going. So, um, but it just, at the end of the day, it matters how seriously you take your journey, right? Um, So you can be consumed by um, your toolbox that wants to see things change and do better and blah, blah, blah. Or you can be consumed by, I just care about my house and my boat and I'm being comfortable and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that either. Mm -hmm. As long as you don't go try to get up in the conversation about equity and you haven't brought your toolbox with tools to actually come to the table and do some work because you might get called out. Do you have any advice for upcoming generations? Yeah. 
be curious. Be a good listener. Um, use your power and privilege, whatever they, whatever they may be, to intervene. Be an advocate. Practice making friends. I like that. Across every kind of border there is. Mm-hmm. And when there's an injustice, shout about it. That was Tracy wilson Kleekamp talking with our reporter, Danielle Pizer. Thank you to Tracy for joining us. And that wraps this episode of Box Voice. If you want to hear more interviews with prominent Columbia figures, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast service. Our next two episodes featuring Missouri Review editor Spear Morgan and restaurant entrepreneur Gina Yu are available now. If you liked the episode, we'd love if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.